listening to Around Comics. Chicago, this is Around Comics, the comic culture podcast where we talk about everything in and around the world of comics and comics culture. I'm your host, Mr. Christopher Neesman, and I'm joined as always by my partner in crime, Mr. Brian Salazar. I am the human pompadour. You are well quaffed. All right, that's getting yes. out of control. The quarantine quaff. It's getting crazy. It is. I'm going crazy. And get your Elvis on. Speaking of the microphone, son. I'm trying. Yeah, I don't know why I'm I'm not very loud. I don't know what, You're low. what's going on. You're low. It is uh, it is, is just uh, myself Maybe. and Mr. Salazar to uh, tonight. This this fine fine quarantine evening, uh, but we've got uh, Thursday evening uh, lined up to chit chat about. We're we're gonna start off. Uh, this, this is the the first of the comics comics one hundred and one. Our Comics 101 challenge to Tom yeah. King, who has accepted the challenge. So he, he he's in. He said he was all in. Uh, if awesome. we get, if we give him three new Comics 101 episodes, he will give us a uh, Adam <laughs> Strange. A three for one deal? I get Well, that's the deal you made. I don't know. The, the Tom King three for one. That was the challenge. Mm-hmm. What are you drinking there? Uh, I know you've been healthy this week. You're not drinking. I, this is actually uh, it's lemonade kombucha. Ugh. Ugh. <laughs> the fuck? You know, yeah, why no, is it you guys out. like you, you, you go hard for like 25 years and abuse yourself. And then you think in a week you're going to fix it with shit like that. Kombucha. I haven't had a drink in 11 days. <laughs> Sorry to hear that. Yeah, yeah, it's a, well, it's probably like a lot of people out there. I, uh, I came to the realization that I was probably doing a little bit too much, uh, board drinking. It's, uh, it's like, yeah, I'm bored. Yeah. Maybe I'll get a drink. Yeah. I'm definitely doing my share of that. I'm definitely drinking more than I normally do, but that, and it's when the fat pants were starting to be a little tight. I was like, eh, okay, maybe it's time to <laughs> maybe cut back on the drinking and, and the carb intake. So trying to trying to be a little bit healthier here. So talking about superheroes, I want to try and look like one, not like you. What does that I mean? mean? Huh? What is well, that you supposed got all to mean? Slim and your, your jujitsu and oh. throwing people around. I'm not as slim as I want. I put on killer now. I've put on like uh, twenty pounds in the last six months or so now probably 12 to 15 of that is muscle but i've definitely put on a few pounds over the last uh i've been eating like shit and just i still train really hard five pounds of anger yeah a lot no i know (laughs) i'm i'm much more gentler i'm a much gentler easygoing sale now i i don't i don't get angry really Mm -hmm. but no it's uh no it's I, i i commend you on your uh, your workouts and you are an inspiration sir oh geez you are a, you know 
fucking inspiration. It's, All right, so shall we? Um, I, we are going to get some other comic talk and and comic culture talk later. But uh, you want to jump right into our comics one hundred and one? Absolutely. Why not? Um, Let's all do this it. stuff is fresh in my brain right <laughs> now. And you know, the older you get, the the, the quicker it, it leaves. So I need to talk about it now while it's uh, while it's fresh. Um, we are talking about the Roy Thomas, Neil Adams run of, of X-Men, not the uncanny X-Men, just X-Men. Uh, this is volume one of the X-Men. It uh, started in April 1969 was their run. I believe that was the first uh, cover date. And um, I think it's important to, to kind of get a little bit of a grasp of of the era. So I'm going to run down a, a few things that were that were going on in in 1969 when these comics came out, just to kind of you know set the set the the era and the and the time. The era. Uh, era. From uh, from music standpoint, you'd be all over this. Uh, Led Zeppelin one came out that year. Oh, sweet! So uh, so if you if you ask your uh, your your uh, uh, voice activated uh, uh, smart speaker to play music from uh, from nineteen sixty nine, like I did, I got Good Times Bad Times was the first song that came up. Very nice. Uh, Very that, nice. Uh, Abbey Road, the uh, the last recorded Beatles record, came out that year. Quitters. Uh, Marvin Gaye's "What's Going On." Uh, it was also the uh, the oh some great uh, Neil uh, Neil Diamond, um, some Sweet Caroline. Uh, really, Sinatra. Sweet Caroline was that yeah, was that old? I don't know yeah. why I think I don't think of that in the same era. Like I don't think yeah. of that song as being that old. But yeah. uh, Sinatra's "My Way." Sinatra, okay. Yeah. Uh, Woodstock happened in 1969. Yeah. Uh, along with that, probably the biggest news story of the year, maybe the biggest news story of the century, was 1969, the Apollo 11 moon landing. Oh, I thought you were going to say the Sharon Tate be at La Bianca murders. But, that was 1969. I, we will get there. Oh, sorry. Uh, sorry, sorry. Uh, the ARPANET sent its first communication. The ARPANET was the ARPANET. precursor to the internet. Uh, the Montreal Expo baseball franchise was established in 1969. Uh, it was the height of the Vietnam War. The Stonewall Riot happened in 1969. It was also the uh, debut of the Boeing 747 and the Pontiac Trans Am Firebird made its debut in 1969. Sweet ride. Yep, and as you uh, as you already mentioned, uh, members of the Charles Manson cult killed five people in the family. Hollywood Hills, including a pregnant Sharon Tate. It was a family, not a cult. Yep. So that's just... kind of that's kind of what's going on. That's kind of what's going on in the world and, and the United States uh, when these comics came out. Um, at the time, Marvel didn't have uh, nearly as many titles uh, on the stands as they do now. Uh, I think DC was probably publishing a few more, but Marvel was still a pretty, uh, pretty tight knit uh, collection of books. Uh, the X Men, uh, unfortunately for Marvel at the time, uh, the X Men was, I believe, their least selling book, and we will uh, touch back on that here in a minute. Uh, the issues that we're talking about, they are 12 issues in total. They start with X-Men number 55 and go through X-Men number 66. Uh, 11 of the 12 issues were uh, plotted and, um, and scripted by Roy Thomas. 
Uh, eight of them were drawn by Neil or, uh Yes, eight of them were drawn with Neil Adams, and seven of them had Roy Thomas and Neil Adams together. So at its core, we're really talking about seven, maybe eight books here. How did, how did you get away with this? How did you I know, get away with this? Why are we talking about you know, eight to eleven books? What's yeah. so important about these eight to eleven books? Nothing. I don't know. I don't. I don't see. I, I'll be hard pressed to agree that these eight issues deserve a vaunted comics one hundred and one. I think it's just you trying to cheese out on on this. Uh, they are the hey. You know, <laughs> ain't nobody paying. You know, for a sponsorship here or whatever, um, I'm going to be very, very uh, forthcoming. These are some of my favorite comic books of all time. These are from a, a nostalgia standpoint, just in my development as as a comic book reader. Uh, when I discovered these comics, I, I instantly gravitated to them and I devoured them. I loved this run. Uh, from from Thomas and, and Neil Adams, mostly because of Neil Adams, and I think you would agree that um, you know books from the late '60s, early '70s can be a little laborious to get through right now. It's certainly a different uh, writing style uh, or the way that comics were really kind of put together in general. But Neil Adams' art on this run is still something to to look back on. And, oh, for sure. Uh, I mean, they're beautiful. Especially if you look at it compared to anything up until that point. I mean, mm-hmm. this is a Neil Adams we didn't really know anything about um, at the time. And and his work was so much different than, you know, the stuff that you had seen, especially in the X-Men books. You know, there's, there there's a few different ways to, to read these now. They're in print in several different formats. I think there's a, a, a trade paperback out. Uh, they actually, I have on order, they have a gallery edition, which is the big uh, uh, oversized uh, hardcover, uh, which is, uh, we, you had just shown the um, History of the Marvel Universe, uh, the prestige, not prestige, what, is it prestige format? What's the, the gallery know. format? Uh, we'll be back after a quick break. Do you ever wish you could sit in on a conversation with some of your favorite authors and listen to them talk about their writing process, their path to publication, and of course, their newest novels? Hi, I'm Marissa Meyer, best-selling author of The Lunar Chronicles, and I would love for you to check out the Happy Writer podcast where every week I talk with other writers about books, craft, inspiration, and how to bring a little more joy into our lives. The Happy Writer is available wherever you get your podcasts or find us on Instagram at Happy Writer Podcast. I don't think they say anything. They just, it's big-ass format. It's It's a big-ass format. So they have have this run in, in that size with a hardcover. I uh, researched this and have them collected in the X-Men Omnibus volume. I think it's called a Treasury Edition. Treasury Edition. That's it. That's the word I was looking for. So I pulled uh, these out, and I've done a lot of my research from the X-Men Omnibus Volume 2. Rory, will you lay down? Goddamn dogs. Goddamn dogs. Um, What's nice about this is 
as Sal was just alluding to, you get to see the art that's leading up to this this run, which is interesting on a couple different accounts. Um, number one, it's like Don Heck. I love Don Heck. Don Heck's great. But you go from Don Heck to Neil Adams, and that is a huge change in art from a, a, a real kind of a stiff... Don Heck was a stiff. You hear it? <laughs> his his art in comparison to Neil Adams looks really stiff. It's 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 a you know cleaner lines certainly that. But then you go to you know Neil Adams more realistic style and just you know a lot of a lot of detail work. Um, but before Don Heck, the two artists that preceded uh, Neil Adams. Are you uh, aware of of who jumped on before Don Heck? Hmm. Usama? No, he was after. No, he was after. Uh, Kirby? I don't know. Steranko. Oh, all right. Steranko did two issues, and he was followed uh, almost immediately, I'll have to check, uh, by a guy named Barry Smith. Oh, well. Who was not using the middle name at that point. The Windsor. He didn't yes. have the Windsor. Uh, very thing. different looking uh, Barry Windsor Smith. Um, but, uh, you know, as we kind of start, well, we, well, actually, Steranko is where a lot of this starts. So Neil Adams, as we, as we mentioned, was working at DC. He was finishing up his run on Dead Man, which another great one, if you can find old Dead Man comics or, or collections, it's another great Neil Adams uh, collection. So he's working over at DC as a freelancer, and he is talking to Steranko, and this is all from Neil Adams' account on, on a lot of this. Uh, and Steranko suggested that he go do some work for Marvel and work in the Marvel method, which I'm, I'm assuming since Steranko, you know, unless Steranko hated Neil Adams, he must have liked working in the Marvel method. And most everyone out there knows what that is, but um, Sal, if you want to catch people up on what the Marvel method is. Uh, well, basically it was, it was a way uh, to quickly, they, they thought it was a way to quickly produce books where basically you would have um, Stan would kind of come up with, generally speaking, Stan you would come up with, with a yeah. plot, a narrative for the story, a basic outline of what was going to happen in this issue. He would tell that to the artists Usually it would be Jack Kirby, but, you know, he kind of started it with Jack because Jack was good enough of a creative talent that he could just go, ah, we're going to have the Fantastic Four fight a monster this issue. And then Jack would draw an entire issue and then Stan would come back and fill in, you know, the the dialogue and try and give it a, a sort of cohesive story. And, and that turned into the Marvel method, um, yep. which lasted quite a long time. Um, there were people that... I. Probably whenever we started around comics, there were, there were still probably a few people working Marvel method. Yeah, if not on a continuous basis, there were certainly people that did it from time to time, if nothing. I know, I think, didn't Burnham, didn't Chris Burnham do a Marvel book? I think he works Marvel method. Yeah, yeah. yeah. some, some and, of this stuff. And some of, the, some of the people I've talked to that have worked Marvel method like it. It's, it's, it's different. You know, it's just a, it's, it's a, it's a different method to it and it's you know it's plot draw script and um it, it you 
it it takes a little bit. I always thought it sounded like the goofiest thing until we talked to John Byrne about it. And he just made it sound like the most natural thing in the world because he did Marvel Method with Claremont on the sure. X-Men, you know, much, you know, a decade, a decade later. Well, it's probably a little freeing to some degree for some artists, especially, especially guys sure. like Byrne and, and, and mm-hmm. Kirby and those kind of artists where they were storytellers anyway. You know, so yep. it was like, just give them the outline and they can kind of, you know, they know in their head what they're trying to do. And then you kind of make it work at the end. And and I mean, we got to remember, too, these were not the the most, you know, uh, character driven or the most intricate plotted of stories. These were churning out monthly issue after monthly issue yep. of comics, mostly for kids. And a lot of them were were one issue stories. Yeah, it's like. This is what's going to happen here, and and we get into that uh, more with with these comics as we kind of jump in. They, it's really a lot of two issue stories. It's it's set it up and then resolve it, move on to the next one. And um, so so Neil Adams uh, wants to come over and do some work for for Marvel. The way that once again that Neil Adams recounts the story is that he meets with Stan Lee and and Stan obviously wants to have Neil Adams, who's one of the rising superstars in the industry, come and work at Marvel. And as the story goes, Neil Adams says, put me on your lowest selling book and, you know, take that for, for however you want. I think, I think you can look at it different ways. It's, it's, he was going to come in and show what an amazing draw he was and what an amazing creator, if he could take their lowest selling book and, and kind of, you know, pull it, pull it up to, you know, higher sales numbers. I also think it probably gave him a little bit of cover, you know? Right. You know, if it didn't go great, well, you know, it was a really poor selling book anyway. Well, I mean, this has been a story. Roy Thomas is, is not necessarily agreed with this story. (laughs) Let's just say that. We will. Yes. It's, (laughs) this will be a common theme as we talk about a lot of this run is that there's the Neil Adams account of how things happened. And then there is the Roy Thomas account about how things kind of transpired. And it's, it's not that they have been at each other's throats about it. I think they both just kind of remember things differently and, you know, like you were talking about at the time, they're just, they're pounding out comics. This is the bullpen era, which right. is another interesting thing. You know, Neil Adams comes to Marvel and he's drawn X-Men comics in the bullpen. He's at, he's at the Marvel offices. He's not in his, in his studio doing this. Um, but yeah, I can, um, I can totally see in the bullpen environment where things are moving you know, a mile a minute and they're cranking out pages and you've got editors and and writers and artists. It's like when, when they would ask Stan Lee about creating Spider-Man or Dr. Strange or, or whoever, he'd be like, ah, I don't know exactly who came up with this or that. I know sure. I did that. And so-and-so did, did I can see that. It's- At the time, nobody was really thinking about legacy. They were just, we, we had deadlines, you know, they they're had deadlines. Yeah. yeah. They were trying to make magazines. Yeah. So yeah, who knows what the real story is, but Neil, you know, Neil is another terrific, uh, self promoter of comics. Yes, and a He's, storyteller. Yes. And a storyteller and <laughs> yeah, has some wild ideas sometimes of things. Mm-hmm. Let's just say that. 
So at the time, uh, X-Men, once again, lowest selling book at Marvel, um, right before Roy Thomas, who's at that point, I believe the associate editor at Marvel. This is uh, just prior to him taking over as, as EIC. I think he would, he would become the EIC in 1971-ish. Uh, so this is, this is just a couple years prior to that. But working on, on the book, it's Don Heck and, and Werner Roth on art. And uh, uh, Arnold Drake is, is the primary writer for a little while here. Uh, interesting, just if, you, if you're paying attention, apparently Arnold Drake uh, was pretty good about writing about uh, teams of misfits who are led by old men in wheelchairs. <laughs> As Arnold Drake is also uh, probably more well-known as being the creator of the Doom Patrol. So uh, here he is working on on the X-Men. His last uh, major creative contribution is that he created the character of Alex Summers, who is the brother of Scott Summers, who would eventually uh, become uh, the character Havoc, who is still around today, as far as I know. And um, uh, we'll get more uh, on on Havoc here in a little bit. uh, but uh, yeah, Neil comes over. He gets paired up with Roy Thomas. Uh, Roy Thomas is thrilled about it, and uh, and so they take over on issue fifty six as a team. Uh, Roy Thomas takes over on issue fifty five with plotting and scripting duties. Uh, moves the the Arnold Drake story. Uh, one issue further, and then Neil Adams joins on issue 56, which uh, one of my favorite covers. It is the What is the Power, which is the uh, the first appearance of the living monolith. Uh, in the couple issues before that, he had been the living pharaoh. He gets supercharged with the uh, mutant powers of, of, uh, of Havoc. Actually, the story is he blocks Alex Summers' off from receiving um like cosmic rays and so since alex summers isn't isn't taking that power and siphoning it away then he uh explodes in power and becomes the the living monolith a funny little story uh living monolith the living monolith but one of my one of my favorite stories about this first issue is the actual the the cover uh the cover that was printed it's it's iconic uh it's it's one of my favorites but there was a uh a preliminary cover a first cover that neil had had designed and it had the x-men um uh, pinned to the the x-men logo and the living monolith grasping the the, the logo and then the the tubed up uh, Alex Summers. It's a it's super super cool uh, cover. Roy Thomas in in his introduction in the omnibus uh, says this was uh, the biggest mistake that uh, that Marvel had made in the year of 1969 was not running with Neil's original cover. The reason why is even though Stan Lee was the editor in chief at Marvel, he was not the guy who had the last call on everything. That uh, distinction belonged to his father-in-law, who was Martin Goodman, who was the publisher of of Marvel Comics. And uh, actually, uh, without Martin Goodman, there 
probably isn't a Marvel. He uh, he founded Timely Comics, which will become Marvel Comics. He was the publisher, and his son-in-law, uh, Stan Lee, would become the, the editor-in-chief. But Martin Goodman saw the cover and said, no, we're not going to put out a cover where you can't see the logo. And so he nixed that, and Neil Adams had to go back and, and redraw that cover. So right from the start, Neil Adams is getting the, the, the pinch from the man. And that Damn would be a little bit of a theme. Um, as, we, uh, as we move into uh, the interiors on, on 56, and we're not going to go through the stories of the interiors on every issue, but I think it's, it's important to, to kind of um, start things off. Just seeing some of, of Neil Adams' work here. I mean, God, the way that he drew Angel... Uh, to begin with, was absolutely amazing. Um, the costume was a little weird. The costume's a little weird. <laughs> they the were doing weird are... stuff in the in the sixties. <laughs> um, I always loved his Beast. It was actually Neil Adams' uh, depiction of Beast made me love that version of the character more than the Blueford version of Beast. And it's because of, we'll see one of my favorite pages uh, a little bit later. Uh, but that was just like, that is, that that character is awesome. That is, maybe it's because I was a short, furry wrestler guy whenever I was, you know, reading this and, you know, felt some affinity to that character. But <laughs> I became a huge, huge, a huge Beast fan um, because of this run. So Neil Adams takes this over. One of the things that comic companies at the time we're not doing was opening up the full uh, arsenal of, of coloring to comics. They help control uh, cost by limiting the amount of screens that, that you were able to use in, in production. They only use those for covers. So you may notice that in older comic books, the covers may have really nice continuous tone with nice gradients and, and that kind of stuff. But you get into the interiors and they're really flat. And um, I think I've got a, a Superman uh, comic page in there that just kind of shows the, the flatness of comics of that era. And that's because they, they didn't have the full range of, of screens to use to mix colors in the four color printing process. Neil Adams comes onto the book and he's like, if I'm going to do this book, you're going to give us the ability to really color it, how it should be colored. And if you look at, at Neil Adams art, he has a very sculpted realistic style to his art and to have really flat colors in it really doesn't serve the art nearly as well. So he comes on board and and kind of kind of strong arms his way, and he's a superstar. So I can imagine how that was probably a pretty brief conversation. He says no, we're going to color this this way, and it's beautiful. It's one of the reasons I actually prefer reading Neil Adams comics on newsprint instead of a lot of the reprints where it's a glossy stock that kind of flattens the color out was he a superstar at that time in 1969 yeah, I, I, he was he was a right okay we'll say rising star you know he was certainly he was certainly a name he had uh he had done the specter and uh okay. his dead man run so he was established he was he was absolutely a guy so it's um i don't he wasn't steranko at that point i don't 
think, but it would man was no man was. I mean, Steranko was was his own his own thing. But yeah, he was. <laughs> yeah, he was coming along. Um, he was it was it was a name. Um, you know, the story, once again, from Neil Adams, uh, when he came on board, they said that uh, they were going to cancel the X-Men in in two issues. And so he says, you know, we squeezed out 10. So. Um, so, yeah, I think he was I think he was a draw. Um, speaking of the and that's my that's my my favorite. Uh, my favorite page is that beast falls out the window page. Um, speaking of the art, uh, Neil Adams is great. But Tom Palmer is freaking amazing with Neil Adams. Uh, a lot of people uh, talk about Palmer with, um, um, oh gosh, Tomb of Dracula, Gene Colan, uh, and his work on Tomb of Dracula. But when he would ink Neil Adams, I think you know, equally that you know that that magic of the almost the third person uh, in the room from a from a penciler inker relationship and uh have some tom palmer examples here and just i i don't know if i've ever liked anyone else inking neil adams i know uh giordano inked neil adams a lot at dc and did an amazing job but tom and neil was awesome um i have no comment but <laughs> so, uh, so anyway, so they wrap up, they wrap up the, the living monolith, uh, story arc and we start to see a trend with the, with the, we say arcs, these are two issue stories. It's, it's set up in the first issue and then resolution in the second, but there's, there's still kind of some overlapping threads in between stories. So you'll see kind of the, 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 end of different storylines will kind of be drawn out and so you kind of i think start to see the seeds of some stuff of the modern storytelling as as it would come about in the in the 70s where it's it's less one shots and a little bit more soap opera is starting to develop and you know at the at the time of x-men being published here they were still supposed to be teenagers but you're seeing more more adult relationships. I did. That was one of the things. Neil Adams does not draw them as teenagers. No. As I went back and I was kind of skimming over these issues, um, it was funny because on like half of the covers, it's the strangest teens, uh, you know, (laughs) in the universe or whatever the hell it said. But it's like, yeah, yeah, these are not teenagers. These are. (laughs) No. And that's, and we're at the, we're at, we're coming to the end of, of the original, the original five X-Men and it's, they're not, they're not teenagers anymore, but you know, they're, they're still kind of sticking along that, that party line Um, before, before Roy Thomas and and Neil Adams come onto this book, the X-Men, as you would read it, they were kind of looked at like any other super group that it's, they would, um, you know, police officers and common people on the street would talk about them and look at them like they would the Avengers. They were a crime-fighting super group. And then Roy Thomas comes in with Neil Adams, and you start to see a little bit more of the development of Beware the Mutant, which 
I think there have been some threads about that before, but it had kind of it kind of tailed off. Well, they bring it back full force. They reintroduced the Sentinels, which hadn't been in in the X-Men comics since like issue 18 when Kirby was still on it. So so the Sentinels come back and we start to see a little bit more of the modern storyline with the X-Men that mutants are a threat to humanity and they need to be controlled. And so you start to see more of the politics of it and not just the uh, cartoonish villain to, to punch. It's actually society is, is starting to become a little bit more of the villain. And as we kind of said at the top of the show, it's 1969. There's a lot of social unrest in the world. So it's a little bit more relevant at the time that, you know, that society be complicated. So we're starting to get into some more adult themes in the comics, which I don't think that we had seen in the X-Men up until that point. I think uh, um, one of the other things that they established um, was sort of the link between, uh, you know, uh, nuclear radiation mm-hmm. and mutant uh, powers and mutants, um, yep. which I don't think was really something dealt with that much. But there's that one um, storyline of this with the Sentinels and sort of the ending of it is they, you know, they decide that. Uh, the sun <laughs> is the greatest threat to the sun humanity. is the source of all mutation. Yeah. yeah. But, but if you think about it, like that was really where that idea of like, this is a mutation, this is caused by radiation. This is caused by the atomic, you know, uh, radiation that we're experiencing. And, and that stuff gets dealt with by Claremont and Byrne later on. And even, you know, years and years after that. Sure. And the funny, the funny Claremont footnote here is that there's once again in the bullpen, a lot of people, a lot of bouncing around and bouncing off of ideas. And so you don't really know who came up with everything all the time. Well, there was a, a young intern at the, the Marvel, the Marvel uh, bullpen at the, at that time uh, named Chris Claremont, who was interning uh, on the X-Men and, uh, and uh, he says that that was his idea was to uh, trick the Sentinels into launching themselves into the oh, sun. So, well, look at that. Maybe. <laughs> Who knows? Young, Who knows? Young, young whippersnapper Chris Claremont <laughs> that's, uh, telling Roy Thomas and Neil Adams how it's done. Um, so we've got the we've got the two issue. Uh, uh, Sentinel storyline. So we go into uh, uh, issue 58, which is when Alex Summers uh, takes on the identity of Havoc, uh, which Roy Thomas uh, says he came up with the name and nobody disputes him. So Roy Thomas named Havoc. Uh, Arnold Drake created Alex Summers and uh, Neil Adams designed the costume. And the Havoc costume is, I mean, it's not just even for the time, but just in general, the the Havoc look is so freaking cool. And in the well, comic, hold on, I a second. love that. Comic. Well, wait, wait, wait. It is so dope. The helmet <laughs> thing is stupid. Yeah, but the manifestation of his powers yes. is yes. what's cool. It's not even the costume because the costume is just like black with a and that's dumb. What's cool about helmet. it is that. Is that all his all his costume is is a spotted black. There's no definition, yeah. no nothing. In those comics, it is just spotted black and it works. It is so fucking cool looking. But the helmet's stupid. 
I'm you sorry. think the helmet's stupid? The, the dumb, like, who would wear the three-piece thing with the, like, what is that? Like, wh- why would you, why would you wear that? That makes no sense. Focus is power, man. <laughs> okay, if you say so. I don't, I don't know if I agree with that one, but. I will the habit costume. I I love the the manifestation of his powers and the way that it changes. Uh, I think that's awesome. I think I've always thought that the helmet thingy was. Let's dumb. agree that it's a that it's a costume that works in comics, but would never work in like a live action adaptation. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, because it would just be like a black jumpsuit. It's like why are you wearing the, this silly? You know. Yes. Yes. So, but I love. I love the the havoc costume. It's one of my one of my favorites. Um, this is, I think, the sweet spot of the run. I think the the two issue Sentinels storyline is where everything is clicking. I think that that Roy Thomas and and Adams and Palmer are like this great focused team. It's my favorite story out of the run and i think this is i think it's not that it peaks but i think this is where everything as a team is really really clicking so um uh 57 58 uh are probably my favorite issues out of this um uh which goes is it uh oh 59 it's actually three issues the 50 uh uh, 57, 58, 59, which 59 is probably my favorite cover. That's one where, uh, where it's the, the, the last, the last X-Man with, uh, with Cyclops. Mm-hmm. So we move on to, uh, to issue 60. It's the introduction of the character Sauron and just some interesting side notes on that. Uh, Roy Thomas and, and Adams are talking about, the kind of stories that they want to write and the kind of villains they want to come up with. And they both wanted to do a, a mutant vampire and they wanted to do like a, a mutant human bat hybrid. And this is a precursor to, to man bat, right? So man bat hasn't been created yet. And so that's, it's kind of the idea they're working on a man bat type idea. Um, they either, and they're not for sure if they actually pitched that and tried to run it through the Comics Code Authority, or if they decided without even doing it that there's no way that the Comics Code Authority would allow that because there was a strict um, no vampires rule <laughs> in, in comics. Seriously, the uh... Comics Code Authority... Um, I, we, we've talked about it in the past. I mean, they're pretty draconian about stuff and and would have stuff changed all the time. And there were just some some subjects you could not bring up. There were some things that you just absolutely could not have in a comic. Uh, you look at guys like Steranko, who really kind of skirted around it and kind of had fun with it uh, through a lot of innuendo and, and, and sight gags. But uh, but anyway, it was decided that that they that they couldn't do a a, a a bat mutant vampire, and so they decided to make it a, a dinosaur, and that's why Sauron is is a big flying lizard. Um, but still, sure. that makes sense. But still, a psychic vampire. Sure, is basically. Yeah, but I mean, what is a vampire like? What? Have you, sorry, but yeah, it, psychic know, vampire. Sixty nine comics code. It it makes me laugh. Um, 
did you watch uh what what we do in the shadows the fx show i have not is it it is, is it good it is one of my favorite things on television i it is <laughs> it is like appointment television for me i cannot oh by the way i told marta that you that you were into the crown and she's like that's a goddamn lie not the crown. <laughs> um it's hilarious. It's really funny, but okay. one of the one well, it's of the, a movie, and then it became it's a, a series. Right? Yeah, it's a movie. It's a it's ta- what's his name? Ta- Taiki Watiti, ta- whatever the hell the guy that did Thor Ragnarok, the movie. Anyway, oh, okay. yeah. uh, he did that movie like before he did Thor and all that, and uh, the movie's pretty good. But the show is really really funny, and okay. but there's one of the characters on it is is an emotional vampire. So, <laughs> and it's pretty funny how they've put him into the show. It's it's so that when you say he's a psychic vampire, a I guess that's vampire. Yeah, that's what I think of. Nice. Um, so we we go through the the Sauron storyline, uh, issue sixty and sixty one. Uh, issue sixty two, Sauron is still is still a pain in the ass, um, but they end up in the Savage Land. And um, 62, it, while not my my favorite uh, uh, my favorite cover in in the series, it is actually it is absolutely how I picture uh, Kazar anytime I think of that character. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 got to be one of the best depictions of, of Kazar that's ever been on a cover. Except like the hair is. Like he's supposed to be this basically Tarzan living, you know, in the wild land, the savage land, but he's got sort of perfectly, he's kind of got my hair perfectly he's, coiffed, he's well coiffed yeah. and clean shaven. Yes, but yes. okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yes, yes, I, I under suspension of disbelief. Yeah. Uh, so here's the funny thing about this this run and comics in general at the time. Uh, Kazar was a bigger draw than the X-Men. This is the highest selling issue out of the run because Kazar is on the cover. Of course. Kazar was huge in the 60s. I mean, he was basically a, you know, 60s icon. If you wanted wanted to draw to your comic book, you put Kazar in there. All right. Welcome to 1969 Marvel Comics, my friends. Taste change, man. He was a half-naked dude. You know, it was... was Like you said, he was Tarzan. Yeah, yeah, he was Tarzan. He was Tarzan. His, his best friend is a saber-toothed tiger. When did the Jungle Book come out? Maybe it was kind of a Jungle Book <laughs> Mowgli. Could, could have been. Uh, one of the uh, um, one of the kind of fun, sneaky things that um, that Thomas and Adams do in this is that they introduce this uh, silver-haired, mysterious stranger in this in this issue. And um, it's not revealed until the last panel with the uh, with the great line as as he reaches towards this helmet and 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 they're they're commenting that that angel didn't recognize him and he reaches for his helmet which is Magneto's helmet and he says ah perhaps uh, clothes do make the man and uh, and so it's been Magneto the entire time Sal oh my God the entire time no yes. Uh, but uh, yeah, I thought that was you know for it, when I was reading it, I knew it was Magneto. But <laughs> I figure at the time, if you were a kid, it's like, oh my god, it's Magneto. Uh, what, what? And speaking of kind of the evolution of 
of the writing style, and if not writing style, the writing themes, this is the first time that I'm pretty sure that Magneto was more than a uh, cartoonish, you know, criminal mastermind, you know, bang pow villain. This is the first time that I think they were starting to actually give some depth to that character as and and a little bit of dimension. He wasn't he wasn't just the the cookie cutter you know bwahaha right villain. So that's one thing with this series and and why why I still go back to it and 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 love it. Once again, the writing may not be totally modern. It may be a little bit of a slog. But in the themes, they're starting to become more modern and more sophisticated. These, I don't feel like these comics are written for for a 10-year-old. They're really written for a little bit older audience. Yeah. I think we're starting to to see that now. And I think, you know, even in Marvel, and and Stan Lee would talk about this, as they kind of figured out in the late 60s, early 70s, that their market was going away from from 10 and 12 year olds and it was going more towards uh college age and you would see that with the uh, as mad magazine would continue to have uh more popularity but also um you know dr strange the hulk those were looked at as counterculture uh figures and were pretty popular on college campuses so with the x-men we start to see a few more of if not adult, more adult themed uh, storylines and and character development. So as we uh, as we move on through the through the Magneto stuff, um, that is, um, uh, I believe, the very last issue that Thomas and Adams would work on together. So that's the that's the last Thomas Adams issue. Um, Issue 64, which is not going to be in a lot of the collections. If you're buying the Neil Adams X-Men collections, they're not going to have issue 55. They're not going to have issue 64. And they're not going to have issue 66 because Neil Adams wasn't on those. With issue 64 uh, of note, it is the first appearance of Sunfire, which is kind of neat. It's a character that Roy Thomas had been wanting to uh, to introduce. And that's really starting to um, show... Um, international mutants and that mutants are you know happening around the world uh um, i always love sunfire i always I, I always love that character I, I yeah he's why. awesome yeah it's it, it's a it's a cool it's a cool uh you know costume design yeah um i always loved that he was really an asshole <laughs> yes yeah he was <laughs> he was he was always it's like and they'd be like was he ever officially a member like like before like uh i before don't like know. the 2000s i'm sure he's oh i think so yeah i want to say was he i because he was always like i don't want to be in your stupid group <laughs> I, you know I, I thought he was in the 80s but i don't know honestly i he can't would be remember around every once in a while but you know it's wasn't he in x-force or something like that or probably one of those x-teams but uh, so this is this is the very first Sunfire issue. It's Don Heck is back, uh, but it's uh, Tom Palmer on inks. And I think Tom Palmer is trying to do his his best to embellish Don Heck in a way that 
kind of resembles Neil Adams. You see some of the, you know, with, with Neil Adams, it's it's a lot in in the lips, you know, in like expressions and you can actually his people look like they are saying things you can almost <laughs> enunciate with with right right that and that that's just kind of a neil adams staple is is you know is they actually look like they're saying something um so anyway so neil adams off this one i think he probably needed a break because he was doing other stuff i think he was he, i don't know he may have been drawing another comic at the time and he had advertising uh illustration stuff going on so uh roy thomas said that he was kind of up against deadlines all the time so prior to this issue he had gone to roy thomas and said hey i've got an idea i want to plot and draw an issue and then if you can come in and and clean up the 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 scripting that would be that would be great and i think roy thomas said his reaction was yeah as long as we're both getting paid the same i don't care and uh (laughs) And so uh, Neil Adams uh, plots issue 65, draws it, and in kind of a what started in the first issue where there was some editorial decisions that were made, probably without, you know, Neil's input. Now it comes back around issue 65. Two things happen that, that may or may not have led to Neil leaving the book and leaving Marvel. For a while um number one uh, roy thomas is associate editor he's writing the avengers and doing other stuff at marvel the production manager at marvel uh basically went to neil and said neil uh, i'm pulling you off this because i need you to finish up this and so neil or uh, so roy thomas without talking to adams um goes to this new guy that was that was coming over to do some work at Marvel named Denny O'Neill and says, hey, Denny, uh, why don't you, you finish up scripting this issue uh, of the X-Men? And so he drops Denny O'Neill to, to do the scripting on it without telling Neil Adams. Um, and, and I think that probably rankled Adams that he wasn't consulted about it. And even though uh, uh, Thomas says that that Denny O'Neill would do just as good a job as, as he would. The uh, the funny thing about that is that that only precedes a couple of years before Neil Adams and Denny O'Neill would start a historic run on Green Lantern, Green Arrow, which ran for, you know, I forget how many issues, but they would become uh, a super team all on their own, which maybe that's another Comics 101. I'll pick a good seven or eight issues of that to, to research. <laughs> you son of a bitch. So the other the other thing, and it's it's really pretty apparent whenever you look at the art, is Stan Lee didn't like monsters that weren't humanoid. This is a thing that goes back to early days at Marvel. And so he always wanted any monsters to be to be to be humanoids and he sees neil adams reptilian monster in this nixes it and tells marie severin to redraw the panels oh my which, god which marie severin does because she's she's marie severin she's she's a pro and uh it's like okay and uh and you can see in the panels in this 
which ones are not Neil Adams and which ones are Marie Severin. So I'm sure that had something to do with uh, with Neil being like, okay, you know, it's um, I'm F done. This I'm done. I'm done. I'm out of here. Um, so 66 rolls around. Neil Adams is gone. Roy Thomas is back to uh, plot and script the last issue. Um, Sal Buscema jumps on and uh, in one last ditch effort to uh, to save the uh, the series from cancellation, they bring over the. Uh, uber popular incredible hulk to uh to draw some viewership over from his very popular title at the time and uh that works to 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 no avail because martin goodman pulls the plug after issue 66 and cancels the series and the x-men fade away forever we never hear from them again and ever Oh, but wait, a couple months later, <laughs> Martin Goodman sees the sales figures from the X-Men from the Thomas Adams run and says, hey, maybe this series has a little juice left in it after all. And he decides to put the series in uh, reprint form from issue 67 going forward. And, um, and we know from... Uh, from looking back in history, that that would last until issue 93. That was the last reprinted issue. And Roy Thomas, as one of his very last acts as editor-in-chief at Marvel, was to make the suggestion that they relaunch the X-Men with an all-new team of international superhero mutants. And the rest. From places like... Canada <laughs> and the rest is history. So and uh, the rest is history. Has it, has it, has it been better or worse since then? I don't know what the X-Men is. It? <laughs> um, you know, I, I love that. I love that Neil Adams run just from the art standpoint. Like I said, that's something, the three issue Sentinel um, story is i still something I'll go back and, and page through, you know, at least once or twice a year. Um, I came into the X-Men reading probably Paul Smith was probably the first X-Men issues. I was, I was reading probably like 175 ish or so. Um, then I went back and discovered the, the burn Claremont run Absolutely fell in love with that. That changed me as a comics fan forever. Before I developed a big appreciation for the Dave Cockrum stuff, which at the time for me, I thought looked looked pretty cartoony compared to John Byrne. I went back and it was Marvel. They released them as, it was like Marvel Classics. Do you remember that? I do. There was X-Men oh, yeah, Classics. X -Men. It was not X-Men Classics. It was, it, or was it, it was... Like I remember the X-Men classics with the Arthur Adams covers. No, different series. Okay. This was before those. Yes, the X-Men classics. And those, I think, those. what did those start with? Did that start with, with Giant Size and go forward? I... Maybe? Maybe, maybe. It was Prior like the 120s, 130s. Okay, maybe the burn. Maybe it started with burn. I, I forget. Um, but 
prior to that, there was a three-issue X-Men Classics series that was released. And it was, it was three, it was, it was oversized issues, and it was collecting the the Neil Adams, Roy Thomas issues. And so okay. that's that's where I read those. Uh, according to Wikipedia, classic X-Men. Classic X-Men, not X-Men classics, classic X-Men. Classic X-Men. Those were Arthur Adams covers, though. Mike, Mike Zach. I'm looking at it right now. You're thinking classic. of the X-Men classics. No, I'm not. Classic X-Men, Oh, oh maybe it's one. X-Men classics. I think you're thinking. We're arguing. <laughs> it was originally, well, here, no, you know what it is? Uh Classic X-Men, originally titled X-Men Classics, and later yes. retitled X-Men Classic, yes. <laughs> is a reprint comic book series within published by Marvel Comics. The first volume was a limited series which collected stories from the Roy Thomas, Neil Adams, Tom Palmer run on X-Men. Because yes, that's but, where I found them. Yes. That was where I found and, those And issues. those covers, those are Mike Zett covers, dude. See, I saw the yeah. Art Adams covers is the ones I remember those yes um, those that's whenever they relaunched that series x-men classics so but or classic x-men whatever yeah i don't know yeah uh, the series reprinted x-men 57 through 63 59 mm-hmm. and 61 to be and to be split across two issues with new gatefold covers opening pages would serve to summarize the events of previous issues and a forward by john byrne the new material reunited original writer roy thomas and original inker tom palmer but penciler Neil Adams re- was replaced by uh, Mike Zack. Mm-hmm. Um, the series also included new covers and uh, frontis species. I don't know what the hell that word is. Produced by artists such as Art Adams. Issues 1 through 16, 8 through 23. Yeah, Zack didn't do the covers. Zack did, did the, the covers of, of the Roy Thomas he didn't. Uh, Adams once. Uh, eighteen through twenty three. Steve Light Lytle did that's, uh, that's a Mike Zack cover. Um, what is that from? That's that's the X Men classics. I don't know. I don't know. I'm just reading it off of. Uh, yep. I don't think that's a cover though. Yep. I think that's an interior. I page. had them. I had those comics. <laughs> All right. Whatever. Yep. I think there are two different series. I think there's X-Men Classics and then Classic X-Men. Maybe. Maybe yep. there was. Uh, X-Men Classic. X-Men Classics. Let's see. What is X-Men Classics? Yeah, these are Art Adams covers. I don't fucking know. Yeah, I love the Art Adams covers. I know what you're talking about. X-Men Classics, 1986. Yeah, who knows? Whatever. Okay. Well, we had, we had a bunch of different reprinted yeah. stuff, so. Yeah. But that's also where I found those issues and the Sauron stuff for whatever reason. And that, I, I, I remember that stuff vividly. Like, I can remember reading those issues and going, wow, this is, this is interesting. I don't, you know, this is a different kind of X-Men because I had... I don't I don't know when I started reading X-Men. I have no idea. I mean I, I can't be remember. like Burn, Paul Smith or Yeah, it's so hard. It's all conflated at this point because I've read it all. So yeah, it's hard exactly. to hard to remember what I read when and in what order. But yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, I definitely remember reading those those reprints, and and that's when I. Uh, so, ooh, this Neil Adams guy is pretty good. He's not bad. Well, you know, that was the weird <laughs> thing. Is like I knew who Neil Adams was, obviously, but I don't even know if I knew he had done X Men mm-hmm. before mm-hmm. that. I, you know what I mean? I, it was nineteen sixty nine. I wasn't even born, so uh, you know, I I uh, I don't know that I knew he had done the X Men at all. So that was kind of an interesting. So, and out of all of it, he did eight issues. Eight fucking issues, and you give him a goddamn comics one hundred and one for eight. I think it's issues. one of the most important runs in the history of the book. Really? No. Yeah. I don't yeah. Know. I think. I think. It, I don't know. A. I don't know if the series gets resurrected without Top 10. it. Top ten. <laughs> I don't think the. I think the series may have died and never come back uh, without it. So well, that's it, hard to say. I. You I don't know. You don't know. I mean, that's that's hard it, to say. I mean, it's it's yeah, maybe maybe it doesn't come back when it comes back. Mm-hmm. Maybe it does, yeah. maybe it's not Byrne and, and and Paul Smith and and Claremont who bring it back. But uh, Dave Cockrum, don't forget or Cockrum, yeah, don't forget Dave Cockrum, Cockrum for a long time. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Who knows? Yeah, I don't know uh, if I I would consider it one of the most important runs from the standpoint of the quality of the stories. I don't know that anyone goes back to those stories and goes, Oh, that was, you know, those are my favorite X-Men stories. Those are the ones that define the X-Men for me. I think there's a lot of stories before that. that yeah. I think most the, people I think there's stories say. out of those, out of those, mm-hmm. you know, we'll call it 10 issues. We'll call it 10. It's, it's 12 <laughs> issues, but we'll call it 10. Stretch it. Um, that's fine. You know, I, I, I think it reinvented the Sentinels in a way that that was used, you know, going forward until probably Grant Morrison. I mean, those were Sentinels at that point. It's he he updated the look and and I I think that Byrne and Claremont ran with his version of the Sentinels. And I think that was I think that was important. Uh, once again, the development of Magneto as kind of a multi-layered, three-dimensional character. No, no, I understand what you're saying. I'm not disagreeing with you from the standpoint of it's important in what came after it. What I'm saying is I don't know if I would qualify it as one of the most important runs from the perspective of the actual stories. Yeah. That's okay. all I'm saying. Yeah, sure. But I understand what you're that, saying. That absolutely makes sense. Yeah. That makes sense. You know, because they're bite-sized stories. But you also have to understand, though, like, X-Men ends at, like, number 200 for me. Well, yeah, I, I get that. <laughs> but you, that... It's like Trial of Magneto, over, done, <laughs> period. They well, didn't need to go on anymore. Okay, all right. Well, I don't know if that's... Uh... All I'm saying is, like, there's no way I'm putting, like, you know, uh, putting this ahead of, you know, Days of Future Past or Dark Phoenix. Oh, yeah, Days of Future Past. Or, you know what I mean? Two-issue story. I understand that. That's amazing. I should do a Comics 101 on that. But what, yeah, (laughs) might as well. I think that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do, yeah, Days of Future Past. That's what I'm going to do, Comics 101. Um, No, but all I'm saying is the the events in those books much more important in the overall history of the X-Men 
yeah, then sure, sure. whatever happened in these ten, eight, nine issues of 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 Neil and Roy. Yeah, and I think that we both agree that that it stands on on the art more than anything. So yeah, yeah. You know, I'm not. A, but I have to. Well, okay. Two things. Like I said, when when you told me you were going to do this, I went back and and I didn't read all the issues, but I sort of went through them and and mm-hmm. looked at 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 them again and and went oh it kind of remembered what they were and two things struck me one i kind of forgot how good neil adams was you know what i mean like obviously i know how good neil adams was but it was like oh wow yeah. like you said that that seeing that beast page again or that beast you know that i remember it like it was yesterday it's like oh yeah this is amazing but yeah. then I also kind of, at this point in my life, I'm like, yeah, I'm not really that big of a Neil Adams fan. Mm-hmm. Because, and and only because I think his art is, it gives a sort of dour feel to the comics. And I don't, I don't really like that in comics. I like... You know, it's like it's 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 realistic. And you, you you look at comics as as escapism, and well, especially you know, yeah. the X Men or you know, yeah, I don't, I yeah. don't, and, I, and I want. His, I mean, he was ultra realism, yeah, and that's it's. I was talking to Windorf about it this week, and he said almost exactly the same thing: is that he got to a point that he had seen so much Neil Adams that um, that that he would rather see someone um who i'd rather see darwin cook line than you know, neil adams you know what i mean I, you what was that i'd rather see darwin cook and that's exactly what i told windorf is yeah. like now now i would rather read a darwin cook book yeah. than a neil adams book and that's i think and i think hilarious that you say that the the reason is because i want comics to be comics in the sense of I want them to be their own medium. And I think guys like Neil were trying to make comics more like film. Yeah. And I don't want a comic book to be a, a, a cheap movie. I want it to be a great comic and in a great comic, anything can happen. Yeah. You, so you I have think no you had a budget. case of a, of a great illustrator who was trying to elevate comics out yeah. of the lowbrow. Don't get me wrong. Neil Adams is an amazing comic book artist, unbelievably talented oh, yeah. and groundbreaking yeah. and legendary and all those things. I'm not suggesting anything about him isn't great. I'm just saying my personal taste is I don't really I don't really care for his art anymore like I once did. Yeah. That's uh, that's all. Completely fair. And looking at my own trek uh, through comics and when I you know, became a big Neil Adams fan, you know, I, that was after falling in love with John Byrne. And so to go from John Byrne to Neil Adams is a pretty, it's a pretty easy leap, right? Yeah. You know, I don't know. I think Byrne brings much light, a much lighter tone than yeah. Adams. But it was going backwards to, 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 to then kind of see, cause I'm sure. Yeah. I see what you're was, saying. Yeah, yeah. 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 It was influenced. It's not like going from, you know, John Byrne to um, you know, even like Kirby um, or right. you know, Eisner or or something. No, I see what you're saying. You know, it's I, it would be easier to you know, like, you know, Kniff or something like that, which would be, 
you know, a, a, a more realistic um, type um, cartoonist. Sure. But uh, yeah, it wouldn't be, you know, until years later that I would really appreciate, you know, folks like Ramita Jr. and and then Darwin Cook and uh, a lot of artists that, you know, really kind of embrace that, you know, Bruce Tim, you know, that that type of artist. Or guys like uh, Jim Rugg, who we Carl, yes. are going to be talking to. I think soon, right? Uh, yeah, cartoons. but Rug is Rug's like Stuart Eminem in that he can be such a chameleon. Uh, he can be a chameleon. I mean, it's if you ask Rug to draw like, oh no, he chooses to draw like in a simplistic. Field, he'll do it if if yeah. he can do Darwin Cook. I mean, the guy can do whatever sure. he wants. But yeah. I mean, the majority of his work is much more cartoony and mm-hmm. fun and and and. Uh, not realistic, you know, mm-hmm. I'm not saying he can't do it. Cause that's an interesting thing. I want to talk to him. Actually, it brings up sort of a question about that. Like why, but we'll get to that Sunday. Right. I think we're talking yeah. to him. Sunday. Which uh, speaking of, if you have any questions for, uh, for Jim rug, you can, uh, you can submit them two different ways. We will be live streaming on Sunday night at eight o'clock central standard time. Sunday, Sunday, uh, Sunday. Or you can, uh, and you can ask them right there in the, uh, uh, in the YouTube stream. Uh, or you can email us at, Info at aroundcomics.com. There you go. There you have so it. Conversation with Mr. Rug. Mr. Jim Rug. Jim Rug. What was that? <laughs> it was just some applause. Applause oh, for our, our oh. announcement, our guest, you know. Yes. yes. Yeah. Limited, limited <laughs> applause. Yeah, and hopefully we'll have uh, we'll have Tom Tom uh, caters along as well. I believe we, we will we find him. Uh, yeah, it's, he's where being, in the world is Tom Caters? He's being held hostage by his children, I believe. I believe so. I think that's the case. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, you want to go? Uh, yeah, that's uh, that's my that's my one hundred and one comics uh, one hundred and one. About that, what do we what call this? Com- well, no, I think it was very good. I think it was, it, you know, it gave a, a nice rounded view of those issues and and that sort of happening. Um, and and. I, I like it because it does give you a, a sense of like this is almost a lost uh, moment in the X Men history. I mean, there's been so many issues, hundreds and hundreds of X Men issues since then, and movies and cartoons and everything else. And and I think you know people have a certain uh, you know depending on how old they are, what era they grew up in. Like my my niece and nephew the x-men to her is the is the cartoon you know the 90s uh gambit and rogue 1990s x-men animated series that's their x-men oh don't Um, go back and watch that man it's rough no don't worry i won't but you know (laughs) i i think i think you know people have their sense of what the x-men is and it's like well there's there's a lot of history there's a lot of things and and this especially is a little tiny part of it that nugget yeah you could you could overlook very easily um but i think deserves a little further you know inspection as we did give mm-hmm. it yeah so and it's job. been it, thankfully it's one of those that has been collected and reprinted ad nauseum i mean because yeah. it you know because it does have the the neil adams 
name on it you know not to slight roy thomas uh but you know it's been it's been collected because it's it's neil adams um how dare you sir how dare well, you slight roy thomas in that I, I mean the the tell is that they is that they leave all of the non-neil adams issues out of the collection <laughs> you know poor don heck doesn't even get his sunfire issue in you know so um but yeah it's it's out there in a variety of um uh, of different formats. Oh, like I said, they've got the, the treasury edition, which I think is like 30 bucks on, uh, on the old Amazon. And that's for the, the oversized hardcover treasury edition. So I've got that one coming, which will be nice to see, uh, you know, Neil Adams art at that, uh, what 13 by nine or whatever the dimension is. I just, uh, um, I, one of the things I want to talk about Jim rug is I want to yell at him for, making me spend money on his podcast. They do such a great job of, of looking, taking a look at, you know, expensive. It's never like cheap stuff you can go and get at a, in a dollar bin. It's always like absolute editions and yeah, stuff it's like ne- that. It's never the hundred page giant for four ninety nine. Yeah. But they, they just did a, a episode on the, um, the, uh, is it absolute edition or omnibus, whatever of, uh, Batman year one. So, uh, I, I ordered that, uh, cause it's, it's because, and this is what they do so well on that because podcast. Of Kelly, you know, they, well, not only like, that, you have to see Mazzic Kelly's art this big, not only that, but there's a bunch of like working stuff in it. There's a bunch of sketches and a bunch of, yeah, layout stuff. And yeah. yeah so it's like, okay. You can't understand the mind of the master without yeah. looking at this. Exactly. So <laughs> I got to yell at them. There's been a few things that they've, they've delved into and it's just like, ah, oh. and they're so passionate about it. It's just like, okay, I got to get this or else I'm not a comic book fan. I can't, mm-hmm. you know, I can't call myself a, a, a comic book fan if I don't order it. So Yeah. If you don't own this, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, don't don't do that to me. I uh, um, <laughs> speaking of of absolutes and like the artist editions, and I'll I'll just talk about this real quickly because I know I'm yammering on and on. I love the artist editions. I love the 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 um, absolutes and all of that. So IDW has a little flash sale uh, like a month and a half ago. And I go in there and I see that they've got the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Artisan Edition for like 40 bucks. And I'm just like, hmm, I would love to see. I, that's that's another one right there with the with the Neil Adams X-Men that for a nostalgia piece, like sure. the first first five, 10 issues of, of TMNT in the 80s. I mean, you were right there the entire the entire oh, time. Yeah. It's, I can pull really, really important books yeah and uh and i have such an affinity for for those early teenage mutant ninja turtle comics and so i order this thing up (laughs) where are you going hold on ah the joys of the video feed i can see whenever he's walking away and not listening to me so (laughs) all right i'm gonna grab my my Oh yeah, they're oh, okay. Oh my god, they were that handy. Okay, it only took him, you know, fifteen. <laughs> yes, seconds they're literally. Well, I only have a couple issues? of them. Uh, this is yeah, that's a issue number four. That's an original. Wow. Uh, yeah, that's an original issue, and I think I have another one in here. I got some some eeries. Oh nice. 
maybe that's the only one I have here. So, um, so yeah, anyway, I don't take I, very good care of my comics. I just, yeah, original Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles number four, it's laying in a bookcase. Yes, there you go. Nice. I I, I still have Fugitoid laying around. Fugitoid. (laughs) Nice. Original. It's in shitty condition, but I still have it. (laughs) So, you know, whenever you order an artist edition, you expect it to come in the big box because they're big books because they're they're full size, full full page. So here's the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles (laughs) artisan edition. (laughs) Not so big. And it's like so, the same size. So, <laughs> well, they did the oversized. So here, this is the funny thing. So I'm initially a little upset and I'm just like, what? They they sent this undersized artisan edition and artisan artisan edition is supposed to be the size of the original art. So I get into it. And once again, I'm a little disappointed, right? But as you get into it, there's a great foreword and you find out that they were they were working on a material called uh, Duo Shade. Duo Shade. Duo Shade. That was the that was the stock that they were that they were making the, the the comics out of. And so what it is, it's a it's a it's kind of a thick board, and it has it has um, uh, material that you have to brush it with a chemical. And when you do that, it reveals it reveals lines. And um, if you like, go over it with a second chemical, it reveals lines that go in in the other direction. And so, if you look at the, shade. the the original productions, what looks like Zipatone is actually the the duo shade ah. artboards. And so that they fell in love with that stuff. And that's they knew that that's how they wanted the comics to look. That's why it has that really cool three dimensional kind of sculpted feel to the art. It definitely had its own look. It gave yeah. it gave it its own uh, look for sure. And that's because this chemically activated board that they were using. Here's the thing, though: these guys are like living on you know pizza crust and and you know diet Dr Pepper at the time and have no money. So that so the boards for this stuff are like 20 bucks a piece. And this is back <laughs> in 1983, 1984. And so the reason that this artisan edition is undersized is because they cut all of the boards in half to stretch them. And so drawn the, with a fucking microscope. And so you know that why the 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 TMNT the size of those comics was different than any other comics those are the size of the art boards that they use (laughs) those are half size of the duo shade boards okay so it's it goes into that whole story you should have done a tmnt uh comics 101 that'd be a good one actually that would be an awesome one that would be a good one but what you have in this are all of the um uh laird is it which one i'm trying to think which one was it kevin eastman that inked I don't don't remember. I think it's the layered breakdowns and layouts. So you've got all of those, which are, you can follow the story, but they're all just layouts. And then something you'll never see, you've got the Kevin Eastman photocopies of the inked pages before they did the duo shading on them. And so you see, 
you see clean inked TMNT pages, which you never see, right? Because they were duo shaded. And so this is a a much cleaner one. And then you see um, scans of the duo shaded original art because they were smart. And I believe that that they kept all the original art. Was the duo shade um, a separate layer? No, it was, was, no, it was. They inked on it and then. Inked on the duo shade board and then you would use a brush with one chemical to reveal. Terrify me. Lines that went in one direction. If you wanted to have a second layer of shading, then you would use a second chemical and it would deepen the shading by revealing lines that went in the other direction. Now you could just do it like with a click of a button. Oh, for sure. For sure. And it's not going to cost you $20 a page. No. Um, so it was an educational, pro- if you're a process junkie, really interesting book to have and kind of look from layout to ink to the duo shading and just kind of the history of the book. So it's the entire cool. first issue done three different ways. Layouts, then the inked, Xeroxes of the inked pages and then the finished duo shaded, finished uh, duo shaded and lettered pages. That's pretty cool. I might have to pick that up. It is. It's it's a it's a neat it's a neat. If you're if you're a, if you're a turtles fan, it's it's definitely Always. it's definitely worth having on the shelf. How I could you it. not be? How could you not be a turtles fan? Yeah. yeah. Now yeah. I want to know. But my it other was issue. the emotional arc of of anticipation because it it is media mail, so it took forever to get here, and then I got it, and I was really really disappointed, and then I got into it. And I'm like, no, this is actually a really fucking cool book. <laughs> Now I don't know. I don't remember. This might be a reprint, actually. I don't know if the green was an original or a reprint. I can't remember. Let's see. Should say. Yeah, but I can't read that. I had like a sixth printing of issue one, which at the time was yeah. still valuable. I think this is a. I think this is an original of issue four, which I don't think. At least when I bought it, I don't think it was all yeah, that that's expensive. That's the first print of issue four. I mean, that's those things went into so many rounds of reprints. The uh, the first issue, three thousand copies. Yeah, I never owned I never owned the first issue, but I did own the original like two through twelve or something. Oh wow, yeah. And had got rid of them at one point and yeah. Made some good money on them, but I okay. wish I had them now. And then I went back and I bought like issue three and issue I think I have like issue three and issue four. At some point, I found them relatively. That first, that first run, man, with when they, you know, d- the introduction of all of those characters. I mean, what a. For, it's funny for being a comic that so blatantly aped off of <laughs> off of Frank Miller and and Kirby to to an extent, but really, really, well, they didn't out. make any qualms of it. I mean, they were no, you they, know no, absolutely not. Um, but. But at the same time, to ape those comics so bad, so blatantly, yeah. But still, the amount of world building that they did, and 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 character designs, and it, I mean, you know, Shredder's a cool villain, and then Casey yeah. Jones, it's yeah. I uh, I don't know what I was looking at. It was like um, one of those boxes, you know, uh, like a geek box where you just order a subscription, they send you a box of shit. Um, it's a box of crap. Box of crap every month. Uh, but one of them was uh, a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle one, and okay. the first item, if you signed up, you got a shredder, cheese shredder. 
<laughs> it was just like a big metal cheese shredder with a shredder helmet on the top of it. I kind of need that in my life. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of funny. I was like, ooh, I almost... I almost need that. You almost got me, you sons of bitches. I yeah. almost need to put that in a yard sale in 10 years. I know, I know. Uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja... Let me see here. Teen, I'm, I'm trying to see like what the original issues... Okay, so this is a first printing. It's not that expensive. You can get them relatively cheap. The I think after number two, they 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 go down in price pretty well. They're not yeah. they're not terribly expensive. The first one, oh, that's a second printing. Number one second printing, one hundred and sixty five dollars on eBay. Yeah, see, wow. Yeah. It's like even like the fourth printings were were pulling in decent money at one point. Number three, I think I do. I have number three. I don't know. Yeah. yeah, I wonder what a number issue issue one first you know first printing goes for. Let's see. If you can even find them. Yeah, I don't even know. I'm sure you can, but yeah, there's just not that many of them out there, which makes them makes them rare. Let's see what eBay has to say. Yeah, one first printing. But funny stuff. I look back on that series, and um, I think for most of us that uh, of that uh, if you grew up in that era for a lot of us i think that was probably the first independent comic that i read um you, wanna look, you know non-marvel non-dc comic yeah i don't know i have to look at the timeline but there was stuff i was reading but it was i want to say i was probably in fifth grade fifth grade sixth grade so it was all like x-men and and captain america and that kind of stuff up into that point all right here's um, a you were probably reading american flag i was reading american flag i was also reading some other stuff old sal reading american flag <laughs> yeah i don't know when that came out but... the misfits yeah um okay so here's uh number one cgc 9.8 first printing uh, asking $79,000. $79,000. There's another one that's a a 9.8 and there was only 3000 of them. This one's a nine, a CGC 9.6 for 32,900. Oh, that's a bargain. Yeah. Um, there's some in the seven, $8,000 range that are, that are, I mean, anything CGC, which you're probably not going to find one that isn't CGC. Yeah. But yeah, it looks anywhere from eight to eighty thousand dollars. Yeah. Uh, oh, here's one for it's a six point Oh, that's a second printing. Jesus Christ, second printing a six point CGC for eight hundred dollars. <laughs> yeah, God, that's crazy. Uh, that's funny. That's funny. That is funny. I yeah. just found out I have a, uh, a a relatively rare and expensive Michael Jordan basketball card. <laughs> yeah, I uh, I've had it forever. My my so <laughs> it's kind of a funny story, but my nephew, who's ten years younger than me, back in the nineties, uh, you know, I, I would have been in my twenties. He was in his teens. Um. He he's a huge. Obviously, everybody at the time is a huge Michael Jordan fan, but he's a big basketball fan, and he and it was when basketball cards were super hot, yep. and so him and my other nephew would always go to this card shop, and they would buy cards with whatever money they had, and they would open them up, and you know if they got anything worth anything, they would take them back 
and trade them and buy more and packs. buy more cards. It was like yep. it was they were more interested in in opening packs of cards sure. than like keeping. It. Well, he opens up. It was the early version of unboxing videos. Yeah. And <laughs> he, so he opens up this pack and he finds this like holographic scoring Kings Michael Jordan card. And I'm like, that's a really cool card. And like out of the pack, it was worth like a hundred bucks. And I'm like, oh, wow. yeah. And I'm like, I'll buy it from you. I don't want you to trade it in. Uh, and I think I gave him like 90 bucks. Mm-hmm. Which is more than he was going to get at the, at the for sure. Shop. For sure. So I took it like that day, bought it from him, put it in a plastic, like a hard plastic case. Mm-hmm. And I've had it forever since then. Never even, I don't even think about it. I, 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 I have that. I have a few other baseball cards and a couple of other, you know, things like that. And I had it all in a safety deposit box for a long time. And forgot I even had the card. Honestly. I mean, I knew I had it, but I hadn't thought about it in forever. Well, my nephew, who is now 39 years old, <laughs> is like reliving his childhood. And you still have that card? <laughs> fucking hits me up on Facebook and wants the card back. Wants and it back? Yeah. Like, Give me my 90 bucks. Well, no, he wants to He wants to buy it for me, but, but I'm like, yeah, it's worth way more than 90 bucks. <laughs> How much is it worth now? Um, It depends on the condition now. Straight I, out of the pack into, I mean, it's got to be yeah, pretty darn good condition. There's no dings in it. There's no corner bends. I mean, it's it's probably in a near mint, you know, a pretty high condition. Mm-hmm. And literally been sitting in a safety deposit box for 20 years. Um, it's probably realistically right now worth somewhere three to six thousand dollars wow yeah <laughs> i thought you were gonna say like seven eight hundred i mean you can get one for probably eight to a eight hundred to a grand but it's a non-graded mm-hmm. and 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 not in great condition but the ones that are in like really good condition are yeah they can get up there in price and i figure with the whole jordan documentary thing it's only gonna go up in price so i'm like yeah, I don't it'll think only I, go up in price again when he dies. Exactly, you know what I mean. And it's like, yeah, yeah, I don't think I'm. I can give it back to you, dude. Sorry, I, I, I know. Fuck no, <laughs> I, I bought it fair. Well, and even, it's not even the money though. It's not even like it's. It's the idea that I've kept this thing for all this time. Like I've, I had the foresight to keep it in a good condition, keep it safe for all this time, and it's like. I want to give it to my kid. You know what I mean? Like I want, you know, it's like, I, it's not, it's not something I'm a collector too. You know what I mean? So sure, it's like for sure. me to like, it's not it's money so much, but <laughs> it's just like, it's Jordan. You know, I'm a huge, you know, fuck. I grew up in Chicago in the eighties and nineties. Like how am I, you know? But, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so. Have you been watching the the doc? Oh God. Yes. It's good. Oh. I haven't watched it yet. Oh, it's ridiculously good. It's, uh, it's so well done. I mean, ESPN does those sports documentaries so no, good. I, the, yeah, I'll yeah. watch thirty for thirties. You know, yeah. all day about stuff I don't even care about. Oh, I watched and, the Christian Leitner one. Oh, Again, everyone hates Christian Leitner. So I good. Love that one. It's, it's so, so good. good. I hated Christian Leitner. I was one yeah. of the. I hated him. And yeah. then you watch for, it, for, and it's like you know, totally the wrong reasons. Yeah. But oh, for still, sure. For you sure. did. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Um, but. <laughs> Uh, it's funny the 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 Jordan 
the last dance is so good um, because what they do with it, it's, I mean, essentially it, the premise of it is the last season, 1996. It's, you know, Krause has said, this is Phil Jackson's last year. He's not coming back as the coach of the bulls. Jordan has said, I'm not going to play for any other coach. Mm-hmm. Pippen is, you know, pissed off and wants asked for a trade and they're trying to win their second three. three. Yeah. You know what I mean? So all this is going on. You got Rodman, who's a fucking lunatic. Rodman, you got, the, yeah, every, the whole thing. Rodman's marrying himself and banging Madonna and all this craziness. But, um, it was a weird time, man. <laughs> but the interesting thing is, is that they, they use that as the premise and that's what's happening now, but they go back in time. Every episode they go back to, well, what was happening in 1983? What was happening in 1991? What was happening? You know what I mean? And, yeah, and they go back to Phil Jackson with the Knicks. They don't go the back. Player. They mention it, but they don't, they don't spend much time on that at all. Okay. Um, they spend a lot of time on, uh, you know, it's, it's mostly Jordan. I mean, it, it is probably 75 to 80% Jordan, Yeah, which, you know, it's, is it a puff piece on Jordan? Does it talk about any oh, of the blemishes? Oh, oh yeah. It talks about them all. I mean, no, okay. there's no, I mean, because he was pretty much a degenerate gambler <laughs> um, and a womanizer. It doesn't get into the any womanizing at this point. I haven't. Yeah. They haven't talked about that at all. They 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 deal with the gambling from a certain perspective of just this stories came out at the time. They don't they don't necessarily like present it as this is what Jordan was doing. They presented as this is this story came out at this time about his gambling and, and that this is the effect it had. But like he says, it's like, if I was, if I had a problem, my kids would be broke. You know, I would, I wouldn't be eating. I would be living. He wasn't a degenerate gambler. He was an addictive gambler. He liked to gamble. gamble on everything. So. Yeah, but it was competitive nature, but it wasn't like he was putting Losing. himself in jeopardy from gambling. He was, I mean, that's, a, people would, li, you, like, he would gamble $50,000 on a round of golf, but that's like me and you gambling a hundred. You know, he or had the money. Five bucks. Yeah, you know what I mean? Like, it wasn't money that he couldn't afford to lose. Yeah. So people had a hard time maybe, you know, dealing with that fact, but it, the reality was it wasn't like he, you know, he liked to gamble. He was super competitive. But they deal with that, like, the stories of, one, how much fucking fear he instilled in everyone. His teammates, the other teams. I mean, there's just story after story about, like, people knew. You know, Michael gotten, he had gotten to a point where, like, after the first three-peat, even after the first two championships, he's the best player in the world. He's, Uh, he's untouchable. He's the King. Everybody knows it. He's done everything you can possibly do in the sport. And it's an effort at this point for him to sort of get up and play a hundred percent. So he would find ways to motivate himself and it could be anything. The, the, the smallest slight that someone did and everyone knew it. And it was, you know, there's a, there's a pretty, they don't, 
I actually I haven't seen him talk about this story, but there's a story you can find on YouTube about Sean Kemp and I can't think of who his teammate was at the time, but Sean Kemp's a rookie and his teammate is having a good game against Michael. And and in the first half he scores like 14 points on Michael. And Sean Kemp is fucking just egging him on. Yeah, go after him. You, he's got nothing. You're kicking his ass. And he's just like, and and the guy, I, I wish I could remember who it was, but I can't remember who it was. Mm-hmm. He was more of a veteran and he like goes he to He was like, Mike, dude, shut up. Basically. He's like, dude, stop. And he, go, and he literally goes to Michael. He's like, hey, man, he's a rookie. He don't know the rules, Mike. In the second half, he scored like nothing and Michael scored like 27 points on him. I mean, he just, mm-hmm. but it was those kind of things he would use as motivation. There's a, he, you know, there's this, these just, but story after story of like, he's in the playoffs and they're playing against the team. And the night before the first game, he's out to dinner and the head coach who I'm not going to tell you who it is or, you know, cause I, you know, but like does something that night in the restaurant, which is nothing like he yeah. And Michael just fucking uses it and scores like 36 points the next three games because he's just like, he's, you know, he had this psychotic mentality of like, Uh, Oh, he's been slighted. And he used that as, I'm going to use that as my, as my way to, to get up. And everyone knew it. It was like, you didn't talk smack to him. You did not say shit. Like there was another, like a rookie or not a rookie, but some guy who was not a good player. And he just, for whatever reason, he has a fucking night against Michael I mean, he puts up like 28 points. Yeah, something like 26 or something. And Michael puts up like four, has a bad night. And at the end of the game, he says something like, nice game, Mike. And they were playing him again the next night. And everybody's just like, oh, fuck, why did you say that? And Michael scored like 55. Yeah, and just yeah. shut him down. But it was the, you know, it's just those things. Or like Spike would, Lee would say, "Sunk the double nickel on him." Yeah, he would just <laughs> he would use anything to motivate himself to get to a point where he was going to beat you. He was. If you can find it, I'm I'm a subscriber to the uh, the Athletic, which is a great. It's probably not worth it at the moment because there's no fucking sports. <laughs> But uh, th- they've actually been doing a lot of neat retrospective stuff. They did a whole story on uh, Larry Bird trash talker oh yeah it's amazing legend it's amazing that i had no idea that i mean larry bird for like a decade was the meanest nastiest trash talker in all of basketball i have gone down some black holes on youtube of like nba stories from that era you know from from there was nothing like it, man. No, I love that it. era. I loved it. The 80s to mid 90s NBA. Well, was... that's the thing you get from this documentary, too, is like all of a sudden oh. you remember. I mean, there's like the first I think it was the first or second episode. And there's a there's a scene where like they're going in the playoffs. It's 1996 and the intro and the Gary Glitter. And I'm mm-hmm. like. I was getting amped up all over again. And I'm like, I know what happens in this game. I've seen it. Yeah. And it's just like, Oh God, it was so awesome. Like to live through that was just amazing. Like, in the, you know, to, to grow up here and, and that, that well, I hear time. stories here in Milwaukee that, you know, it's when the, when the bulls would come to Milwaukee, it's the, it, 
obviously a sellout, but it would be people from Chicago because it was the only way that a lot of people from Chicago could Could ever see Michael Michael Jordan in person was to drive to Milwaukee. Yeah, the tickets were ridiculous. I mean, yeah. yeah. Oh, you couldn't you couldn't get a ticket to the old Chicago Stadium and and then the United Center when when they were playing. It was ridiculous. But it, yeah, the documentary is phenomenal. I, I wait cool. for it. it every every Sunday night, and two hours goes by so fast. I just I could watch it. I could watch that every night for the rest of my life. Like that's how good it is. It's so good. Well, it's, it's like watching know. that team. It, it's the only time in my life that I can remember turning on the TV and if the bulls were on, it's, they were going to win. Um, oh yeah. You know, it's in a 82 game season, you know, they'd lose and that, in that stretch, they'd lose 15, 17 games a year. That was a year. I mean, that was the thing, too, like, especially, you know, at his prime in the playoffs, it was just like you knew he was going to find a way to win. You just had that confidence of, like, you knew he was going to find some way to pull through and win, and he just did it, you know. I feel like they were all, like, 4 nothing, you know, wipeouts, but some of those series went pretty deep. (laughs) Yeah. There were some tight ones, you know. There were, oh, I mean, there were sure, good teams. Sure. I mean, it's playing, you know, Clyde Drexler. Um, you know, oh, there's a, Clyde, there's a Clyde moment. That's the, oh, the other beautiful thing is they're also interviewing all these guys now. So mm-hmm. it goes from 96 to it might go to 83, 87, 91, and then it goes to today. And, yeah. like, one of the genius things they ha- they keep doing is they'll have somebody today, like, Isaiah Thomas talk about a game or what happened or like, Oh, wow. Yeah. Because they still don't like each other. Well, <laughs> so they'll have Isaiah answer or talk about a, a, something that happened and then they'll go to Michael and they'll show him on an iPad, what Isaiah said. And Michael's just like, okay. <laughs> you know, and, and then, you know, That's gives funny. his, his, pers- Oh, it's, it's, there's some beautiful moments. That's funny. Or or like, you know, they're talking to Steve Kerr now about like, you know, playing with Michael and the fight that they had and, and, you know, stuff like that. And just how, you know, the interesting thing is, is like everybody talks about how demonstrative he was as a teammate, how, how he demanded so much from all of them. And he tried to break guys because his philosophy was, if you can't handle me coming at you, you're going to be no good to us in the playoffs. And so he would, you know, he would go after guys and just, I mean, they were terrified of him, but they all were kind of like, except, yeah. Except Stacey King, who would just laugh. Well, actually the guy, it was Scott Burrell. He, he talks about Scott Burrell and he's like, I tried to get Scott Burrell to fight me. And he's just such a nice guy. There was, he would just roll with it. He, it didn't matter what I said to him. Scott That's Burrell funny. just rolled with it. He didn't. And, but. You know, it, it, yeah, it was, it was, I mean, Stacy King still has one of my favorite Michael Jordan quotes. Oh yeah. The, it was, uh, was it the flu game where, uh, I don't know, was it the flu game? It, it might may have been the flu game where Michael scores 69 points and Stacy King comes off the bench, gets fouled, scores a free throw. And he's, he's in the locker room afterwards talking to the reporters. He said, yeah, I'll never forget the night that Michael and I combined to score 70 points. <laughs> That was Stacey King. I, they they talked to Spider a little bit. They talked to Rodman. They talked to Pippen, Kukoc. 
uh, Phil Jackson. Kukoc still one of the most underrated players out of that entire. Oh, he was group. yeah, he was terrific. Yeah. Um, that whole thing's interesting when the, the Olympics and how they fucking dominated him in the Olympics just because Kraus uh, was in love with him and they were like, okay, fine, we're gonna show you how fucking you know because it was like they wouldn't pay they wouldn't pay Scottie Pippen. Yeah. And they're he's all he can do is talk about this fucking guy in Croatia for you know, because there was this long courtship that Kraus had with with Kukoc. And they're like, okay, we're going to go play this guy in the Olympics. We're going to show you. And they just dogged him. And, you know, it's like the first, first game. But then he came back and, and played pretty well yeah. in the second game. Kukoc was, yeah, he was always a good good pro. God, fucking Jerry Krause. Jesus. Oh. All right. So there's some sports talk for you starved uh, sports <laughs> yeah, fans. Right? I kind of forgot we were uh, still recording a podcast. Like, hey, yeah. <laughs> Nice. Well, I tell you what, let's um let's go ahead and wrap this one up and we'll Sounds save good. some comic stock. I'm not for sure exactly how Jim how long Jim Rugg is gonna be on with us on Sunday. Four we'll hours find out as we go. But uh I got some other stuff to talk about. I, I talked about all my stuff, so I'm sure everyone's like, What's the hell reading? So um so we'll mean, find out on uh, on Sunday, hopefully, uh what you've been what you've been up to, sir. Yeah, reading some stuff, reading some comics. Some old comics, some new comics. Nice. A little bit of both. And then we still, we still, honest to God, we're going to talk about Coffin Bound uh, probably next week sometime. I got to read it. I still yeah. got to read it. I hey, it's your, it. it's your pick. I know, but I'm lazy. I don't, I know. I, uh, I've been reading Shazam comics from the fucking golden <laughs> study, age. Study. You don't have to do a one-on-one on, one on got, the entire, you don't have to do a synopsis of every issue. No, 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 no. no. But I have a great resource. There's, I have a, a terrific resource for the Comics 101. So I think okay. most of my work is it's called of, Wikipedia. No, actually, it's okay. not. It's not. It's a book um, that came out a few years ago that I, I picked up. And uh, it's a it's it's a great. I will mention it when I do it so that people nice. you know can buy it if they want. I know I, I called you, I called you from work the other day and I started telling this. Neil Adams, Roy Thomas story. And you're like, dude, save it for the podcast. I was yeah, like, yeah, you're right. You're right. You're right. Got to save it. Got to save it for the good stuff. Yep. All right. Yeah, that was fun. I enjoyed that. So I'll have to think of my next one. That's uh, yeah. And if you like the comics one oh one, uh, let us know. And uh, if you have any suggestions, love to uh, love to hear them. Doesn't mean we'll do them. But we'd love oh, to hear them. Uh, I do. I think I have an email. If you want to do an email real quick. Yeah, let's do an email on the way out. Let's see here. Oh, I never pulled this stuff up ahead of time. Give me a second. Oh, uh, while I'm pulling this up, I, I just want to mention to people, if you're watching this on YouTube, um, you can obviously listen to the audio of this on uh, um, uh, Apple Music and Google Podcasts and wherever Stitcher. podcasts are found. If you're only listening to this and you'd like to watch us, if you'd like to see our beautiful smiling faces... Um, you can uh, watch the video of this on YouTube. We have a YouTube channel, so just just go to YouTube and search for Around Comics, and you'll uh, you'll find it. I'm sure we do have faces for radio. Warning we you, <laughs> yeah, we're not. Hey, man, everybody's doing it now. It's like uh, every, everybody's got a, a shitty home based, you know, uh, audio podcast. Um, all right, let's see. What did I do with this email? I have no idea where. It oh, here it is. SNL's been rolling. Uh, this is from Christopher Vu. Okay. 
He says the the Batman trades I would choose for someone to read if they only had a layman's familiarity with Batman would be something like Paul Denny's Detective because they are standalone stories. They oh, great, great, great pick. They aren't steeped in a ton of Batman lore like Morrison's run or Snyder's run where there's a ton of uh, minutia that wouldn't make any sense to a person who doesn't even know uh, that there have been upteen Robins at this point. Similarly to a comic like uh, Jeff John's original run of Superman, I feel the best way to hook a new reader is to present to them quality material where the subject matter is what they are probably most familiar. In Batman's case, they probably recognize material from the old Batman TV show, Super Friends, or Batman 1989, where it's Batman, Robin, Alfred, a couple of goofy villains. Let them read that and go from there. So there yeah. you go. That's that's good. Uh, that's good thinking there, Christopher. It is. It is good thinking. Oh, um, speaking of Batman, the animated series. Uh, uh, I still have your DVDs of that. If you. Oh, want do you? <laughs> do you really? You gave me those a is decade. Those went? Uh, yeah, you gave them to me. I have them. I just the happened. To... Again. Oh. <laughs> Why would you do that? I, I have no idea. Um, yeah, you gave uh, me them years ago. Of like, here, take these, watch them. And I'm like, okay, Watch these. I don't think, yeah, I still change your life. Uh, uh, really uh, saddened to uh, hear about the, uh, the passing of Marty Pascoe this past week. Oh, I didn't know that happened. Yeah. Marty Pascoe, um, uh, passed away. So oh, wow. he was a, a writer on that series and comics and all sorts of stuff. So I did not so, know. Yeah, rest another, another one of the good ones gone. So, um, <laughs> Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to be back on Sunday. We're going to have Jim Rugg with us. We're going to try and find uh, Tom and rescue him from his children for a couple hours. Uh, uh, If you have any questions, send them in. Info around comics. Uh, We'll have the live stream up on YouTube. You can find that uh, through the Facebook posts and the Twitters and the TikToks and all that. Um, In the meantime, in between time, We'll be everywhere in and around around. comics. Yay. We're done. Neil Adams. Neil Thomas. Little Neil Adams. Greatest X-Men run of all. Wow. I'm gonna I'm gonna mute you now. I know.